0: Phineas 61. Good morning to all the saints at Westside, all the saints at Battersea, all the saints at Balaam, all the saints online and on the podcast. And this is your weekly sermon. Yeah, my name is Philip and I'll be your host for our worship in the Word this morning. You're very welcome. This is your first time um, and those who haven't met me. And as uh, Lauren said, we are closing our, uh, what is it, nine week series in the book of Ephesians, but also finishing it by talking about spiritual warfare. So good luck. Um, we'll be looking at Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 23. Um, and for those Bible lovers out there, I think on my latest count, and it changes all the time, I'm at about 20 different scriptural references today. So if that's your thing, good you know you'll enjoy it. If it's not then I apologize. But before I start and launch into all of that, let's take a look back at the series we've been in. If you haven't joined us for some or all of them, then hopefully this is a bit of a catch up of what we've been through. We have done nine weeks of exploring this letter known as the letter to the Ephesians by someone called the Apostle Paul. Um, and what we're going to do, we're going to do a really quick quiz. So this is going to be a site specific quiz. So wherever you are, you can join in. I'm just going to compare it. Um, and we're just going to do it by quick, uh, when I read the question, give you the options, raising of hands as the appropriate time, and you look around the room you're in and see what everyone else is answering. Um, so, and if you're listening to the podcast on a train, feel free to put your hand up. Everyone does that in London, <laughs> especially if you're new to London, people do it all the time, so you will not be look weird at all. So, the first, the first question, if hopefully it's on the screen, is this, how many times... In this letter, does Paul say that we are in Christ? How many times does he say we are in Christ? And just for clarity, people disagree, so I couldn't give specific numbers. But is it A, and I'll go through them and then quickly, we can do some hands. A, is it around 10 times? B, is it 20 times? C, is it 30 times? So put your hand up, the site you're in, if you think it's A, 10 times Put your hand if you think it's B around 20 times. Put your hand if you think it's C around 30 times. It is around 30 times. I read two things. I read one that was 27 and one that was 33, so around 30. Question two, pop quiz two. To whom was this letter originally written? No clues on the board here whatsoever. Is it A... Only Christians in the city of Ephesus. Is it B, you and me? Or is it C? We're not totally sure because the earliest copies reference Ephesus, but some also don't. So we're not sure if it's a circular letter to the area around Ephesus called Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. (laughs) Okay, in your sights. Put your hand up if you think it's A. (laughs) Uh, Put your hand up if you think it's B. Do you think it's C? Correct, it is C. And then the last one, quickly: which of these themes have we seen as more than these? But which have we seen in this teaching series about Ephesians? Have we seen A, our collective identity in Christ? Have we seen B, being blessed to be a blessing to others? Have we seen C, the purpose of our salvation in Jesus? Have we seen D, the breadth and depth of God's power and love for us? Have we seen E, the unity and reconciliation in the church? Have we seen whatever letter's next? It's not on my notes. Living differently to live differently. Sorry, living different to love differently. Or is it the last option, all of the above? I'm going to start at the bottom. In your sights, put your hand up. If you think it's all of the above. Well done. Now, if you got three out of three, then keep it to yourself, because all we remember in Ephesians 2, we're taught we're saved by grace, we do not boast. <laughs> there is going to be one more Bible quiz question for you later on. So, yeah, keep your ears peeled. So one other thing I want us to remember for this Ephesians series before we jump into chapter 6. And that's probably this letter hinges on one very simple Greek word of un. You find it in Ephesians 4 verse 1. And it is very simply a word. It comes 263 times in the Bible. And it simply means Therefore. Or then. That's how it's translated in our English Bibles. Therefore, or then. Because Ephesians is essentially a two parter. The first three chapters talk a lot of powerful truth and Paul's prayers about what Christ has done for us, who we are in Christ as the church. And then he hits verse 4 1 and says, therefore, or then. Um, And it flips into the last three chapters that we've talked in the last few weeks about some of the practical content of what it actually means, therefore, to live out that calling as the church and our new identity in Christ together. And why do I think that's really important to remind you of that central hinge, this simple word, therefore? It's because when we come to chapter six, which we're going to read in a moment, it's about spiritual warfare, And Paul starts it, as we'll see in a moment, saying, finally. And I think it's very easy to think, oh, he's just moving on to a totally different topic that he has not talked about. doesn't really have any direct reference to the previous content, but it's something important. But that would be completely false because this is actually intimately connected to the rest of it and is a key part of that therefore word. And if we didn't know already, hopefully I'm going to show you this morning that if we didn't think the whole of Ephesians is a matter of spiritual warfare, then we have missed something. So we're going to read these last verses. I'm going to read them together. Hopefully they're on a screen in uh, big, enough, big enough font, I hope, this time. And it's Ephesians 6, uh, 10 to 23. And Paul writes this. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His strength, the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we are not contending, we are not fighting against flesh and blood, but against the principalities, against the powers, against the world rulers of this present darkness, against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand in the evil day, and having done all to stand. Stand, therefore, having girded your loins, prepared yourself with the truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having put on your feet the equipment of the gospel of peace, and besides all that, taking on the shield of faith with which you can quench all the flaming darts or arrows of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And pray at all times in the Spirit with all prayers and requests. And to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplications and requests and prayers for all the saints. And also for me, that is Paul, but you can also pray for me. That utterance that the right words will be given to him, given to me, and opening his his mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery, meaning revelation of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, because he is in prison writing these words, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So let's jump in. First of all, let me observe some phrases that are going on here, but also implied here. As I mentioned, I think when we hear this passage talk about, if we have it, maybe your first time, maybe multiple times, it's very easy to think this is something, as I said, new, new to the content of Ephesians. But actually, what's on, on the, one of the slides there is actually Paul is not bringing up something new. You can see there in Ephesians 2, Ephesians 3, Ephesians 4, and Ephesians 5, Paul has brought up over and over again this idea of a cosmic perspective and of opposing spiritual forces throughout all of Ephesians. But really importantly, he's not only referenced to the opposing spiritual forces, but to frame our content today and this whole letter, when he opens the letter talking about Christ in Ephesians 1.20, he tells us where Christ is ruling, where that victory has come. And does he say it's just over the physical earth only? He does not. He says this. In Ephesians 1.20, when the Father raised Jesus from the dead and made him sit at the right hand where? In the heavenly places above where? All rule and authority and power and dominion. This is the same language that Paul is expanding on and talking about more in Ephesians 6, but it's certainly nothing new. So our task, therefore, in understanding what Paul is saying here in Ephesians 6, as part of our teaching series, is to find this golden thread. What has he been saying about this throughout? How is he expanding on it now? How is he saying the same things again? But let's take another step back and just show you also this is not new even to the New Testament. Paul is not starting something even new in this word Ephesians. The phrase which in some translations in Ephesians 6 of powers and principalities is said by Jesus in Luke 12 and Luke 20. And Paul will use it again in 1 Corinthians 15, Colossians 1 and 2 and Titus 3. I don't know if you're keeping count, but that should be about 10 by now. So, again, the key point here is, in understanding Ephesians 6, is Paul doesn't actually explain a lot in this moment about these powers and principalities that he's talking about. Even though he drops it in over and over again, he doesn't really stop to explain or make the case that they are true. And the reason is because he's writing about established beliefs in the emerging Christian understanding of God. His audience already knew they were true. He's simply referencing how they already understand the world. So let's have another quick look at how the rest of the Bible does talk about spiritual warfare to use some of this language that might be familiar to you. Because it's also important to remember the phrase spiritual warfare, which may be new to some of you this morning, doesn't ever appear in the Bible. It's not to say it's not true, but it's a phrase we have used to describe what we think is happening in the Bible. But there are particular words that are used. For example, um, both Jesus and the New Testament, there are two words. One, you might know the name either from common culture or the Bible, the word Satan. It's the word Satanus. It's a personal naming um, of Satan. And it means an adversary. It literally just means an opponent, someone who opposes or goes into conflict with you. It happens about 36 times. And the second word, which is the devil, Most of us will be familiar with that word. It's the Greek word dabolos. Turns up about 37 times. Interestingly, this isn't a naming word. It's not a proper name. It's a describing word. And this means a slanderer or a liar or someone who kind of brings uh, things into disrepute. So you can see my first point really here is that this is not a new thing. Paul is not doing a new thing here in Ephesians 6. He hasn't done a new thing throughout Ephesians. And therefore, I think it's worth pausing here and say so again, two things. If we hadn't clocked that everything we've heard from the Ephesians series is shrouded, uh, framed in this cosmic framing, then we haven't fully understood what's happening and what's being said in Ephesians. Because this is the summary of what I want to start with. Is that both Jesus, Paul, and the Bible, biblical authors, are clear. There are opposing spiritual forces in this world. And God is in a spiritual battle with them. And therefore, we are part of that. There are opposing spiritual forces in this world. God is in spiritual battle with them, and we are part of that. And I would just encourage you to sit with that for a moment. I don't know where you're at with that kind of language. I don't know where you're at in being a Christian or a guest with us this morning. But I mean, how does that feel? Does that feel uncomfortable? Does that raise more questions and it answers? Is that how you understand our faith and our Christian worldview? I suspect some of you is uncomfortable. And I just want to say that's a good thing. I, I, it's not language I naturally think about or use in my Christian life, but doing the preparation for this has really challenged me. And therefore, I just encourage you to stay in that place this morning as we finish off and do the rest of this content and what Paul is saying about it. This is something you will need to grapple with. Because if we dismiss it purely as a pre-non-scientific understanding of the world, then not only are we at odds with the words of Jesus himself and the apostles, we will miss a crucial aspect of Christianity and what God and Jesus says its life is going to feel like sometimes. But the story is not done this morning, so I say that as a pause point. So wait till we finish, Where shall I finish this morning before maybe you draw any conclusions. So let's now dive into more detail, chapter 6. And I want to trace two more things with uh, the rest of my time, which is this. Number one, what does Paul say is the nature of the spiritual attack? And number two, what does Paul say about how we respond to those attacks? The nature of the spiritual attack and how we respond to those attacks. There's another really important word which uh, as soon as I started prepping just dumped out at me because it's a fun word but also it, I think it's a very important word and it's in uh, six, chapter 6 verse 11. Um, the RSV which is a, the Revised Standard Version that I read out you, refers to it as wiles, the wiles of the devil. Um, I just like it because it kind of sounds like wily Coyote but then also that's anyway not at all what is being said here but it's just, a, it's just an unusual word. Anyway, um, if you have different translations, often it's translated as schemes, which I think is, is, can be more helpful for how we understand and use English. Um, and because of what it speaks of, I think, is not simply in your face opposition. It's not a war like we might see in the world around us between humans. There's a subtlety. There is, I dare say, a craftiness about what Paul is alluding to these attacks. And when I wrote that line, I thought, hmm, craftiness. That is a word that's ringing a bell for me. So here's your pop quiz. Again, in your sights, feel free to shout out. Where else in the Bible does the word crafty appear? If you said Genesis 3, again, don't boast, but you are correct. <laughs> Genesis 3 is the entrance of sin into the biblical narrative and worldview. Genesis 3.1, should be on the screen, says this. Now the serpent was what? More crafty than any other beast in the field that the Lord has made. And in the rest of that story, we know the serpent went on to draw Adam and Eve, the first humans, into a rejection, and rebellion against God, and release the power of sin over God's good creation. And what was that scheme? That the serpent did in in with Adam and Eve, it was to lie and to deceive. Now, we can't, I'm not gonna go into the the important deep theology of of what's happening in Genesis 3, so let me jump to some of the clarity of Jesus' words to further what I'm suggesting this morning. In John chapter 8, Jesus is having a very robust debate. He's recorded as having a very robust debate with some Jewish leaders, and they're attacking his claim to be the Messiah. And Jesus says to them these very strong words. He says to the Jewish leaders he's talking to at the time, you belong to your father, the devil. That's that word, diabolos. And you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar And the father of lies. So let me make my case why I think Paul is referring to this, particularly in Ephesians 6, even if it's not explicitly named. And it's because when we look back at some of the earlier chapters of Ephesians, uh, there's a particular pattern that we can notice, especially in chapters 1 to 3. And it's this he has a pastoral pattern of theological truth and prayer. Theological truth and prayer. In the first three weeks of our teaching series in chapter one, we talked about our identity in Christ and all the things that he has done for us and who we now are. That's the truth. And what does he do at the end of that? He begins, he goes immediately and says, I now have pray for you. I pray for you that this revelation would come to you. And in the chapters two and three, he starts with, again, with more theological important truths. But what does he do straight away afterwards? He says, for this reason, I will fall to my knees in prayer, that God would release the knowledge of his love for us. Truth and prayer. Truth and prayer. Why? I think it's because when we are working, when we are trying to understand here, this foundational level of truth about God's goodness the victory of the kingdom of God and who we are in Christ, who is it that's going to immediately try and get in the way and respond? It is Satan, the devil, the father of lies, the powers and principalities that want nothing apart from us staying in our state of slavery. It will be under threat, always, and it's usually not going to be obvious. Good lies are not a full frontal attack on logic. They are crafty. These words are not just words, especially for me right now. I wrote these words, literally about started writing the words 10 days ago, um, One day after another painful, a fourth painful loss I'd experienced in the last 14 months. And I knew immediately where the the battle was going to be fought. It wasn't actually in the the, the pain and the grief. It was in that voice that was going to say to me, you see, God isn't good and he doesn't love you. And I was in church last week at the Bowen site. Um, yeah, again, just a couple of days after this was happening to us. And all the worship songs are about God's goodness. <laughs> and anyone who saw me, I was quite literally walking out, out the door at the Bowen site and back in, and back out, and back in. Because what was happening for me was I was saying, I, I can't be in there. I can't, I can't sing those words today. I can't hear them today. And I walk out. And then I turn around and say, no, no, no. I, I need to be in there because I need to hear them. Because even if I can't sing them today, they're still true. And I did it through the whole worship set. I didn't sing a single word that morning. But my worship was standing with Jesus in that battle. Because I was going to stand firm and say, this is, this is still true. John Montgomery, in his book, um, it's called Live No Lies. I'd recommend it if this is of interest to you. He, puts, he makes a whole thesis actually, about the Bible um, and, and the power of lies and spiritual warfare and formation. And he puts it really, really directly. He says this, Jesus sees our primary war against the devil as a fight to believe truth over lies. So this is my suggestion to you this morning about what these schemes are. Paul is talking about the nature of the spiritual attack in Ephesians 6. It's truth and lies. And let me just put a quick disclaimer in here. This is not a full sermon on spiritual warfare. There are a lot of other aspects of spiritual warfare within the scripture which um, are not for today. Um, but this is one particular thing I want to bring out from Ephesians 6. So again, let's move forward with Ephesians and say, okay, so if this is what Paul is talking about, how is he saying that we respond to these schemes? If he indeed is talking about truth and lies, how should we respond? And in many ways, this is going to wrap up our Ephesians series together. Eugene Peterson, Partha, Partha, Pastor, author, and translator of the message, paraphrases of the Bible, points out something really helpful that in, in this passage, Paul says the same word four times, almost like, really weirdly repetitively in verses 11, 13, and 14. He says, stand. He says, withstand. He says, stand. And he says, stand again. We learn to stand. Peterson, speaking about it, uses these wonderful words to describe it. He says, what Paul is saying, he's saying, steady now. Stand your ground, stay on your feet. Stay firm in this place of blessing that we now inhabit, which is Ephesians 1. In a world that confronts us with demands, criticism, misunderstanding, rivalry, getting, spending, lies, and seduction, stand still and take in this blessing. This is solid ground. So on one level, it's that simple. We learn to stand. But as I said, this is not abstract to me. So how, how do how do I, how have I been standing firm in the face of some of the things I'm sure many of you are dealing with as well? How am I standing before you after the 14 months we've had battered, even more confident. Even more confident in the words I am saying, because throughout Ephesians, Paul has given us, and obviously all the scriptures, but throughout Ephesians, Paul has given us so much good news and truth in which to stand. We read this and we can tie it so much back to the early parts of Ephesians. We stand where? In Christ. We stand together as a church community. Let's go back to that pop quiz. How many times in this letter does Paul say that we collectively and individually are in Christ? 30 times. Almost one for every day of a month. And also in Ephesians 3, Paul uses a similar theme when he prays for us what? To be rooted and established in God's love. You can't stand unless you're rooted. And what do we stand rooted in? We stand rooted in the unfathomable depths of God's love. This is not a wishy-washy love. This is not a sentimental feeling. This is not God's only God's affection and warmth to us. So it is that. It is love given flesh and bones in the unfathomable power of the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. So here is my summary. Paul is not instructing us to stand against the schemes of the devil as separate from the rest of Ephesians. He's saying we stand against the schemes of the devil on the basis of the rest of Ephesians. It's not separate from, it's not different. He's saying we stand on the basis of everything he's written so far in chapters 1 to 3. But there is a little bit more. Forgive me, I know I'm going a little longer than I normally do. Hopefully, this is worth it. In chapter 6, Paul speaks about some of these specific pieces of armor. And there's something really interesting going on here. There's quite a few things going on here. Paul is probably drawing on a metaphor of a Roman soldier that's very familiar to people around him. But when you dig a little deeper, you see something even more powerful. He's almost certainly quoting from some Old Testament prophecies about God. On the screen, you can see there are some lines there from Isaiah 52, Isaiah 11, and Isaiah 59. You can see where he's getting this stuff from, the belt around your waist, the feet of the good news, the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation. He's not saying something brand new. In particular, in Isaiah 59, biblical scholar Holly Carey explains significance in this way. She says, Paul is not here calling on Christians to arm themselves against each other, but to clothe themselves with the very characteristics of God that will result in the kind of community that he desires. Paul is using this image to remind us that God is the original and the true warrior against the devil, the powers, and the principalities. He is the author of our victory. We live in his victory, in his kingdom, and his strength. And the significance for me here is he's not pivoting away from Stan to say, Oh, by the way, here's some active things you also need to do, otherwise you're going to be at risk. He's going to say this armor represents the power, the love, the authority of God in which we stand. And when we stand in that individually, but also collectively, we form the body like the one Paul has taught us about in Ephesians. This is what I'm standing in. This is what we have had so many friends to come alongside us to form the church around us. This is how we stand in the difficult times and the lament. We stand in the truth. So let's come in to close the series. John Stott, who's a legendary, uh, well, the legendary leader and preacher, summarizes all of Ephesians in this way. He says, We are to demonstrate plainly and visibly our new life and the reality of this new thing which God has done, by the unity and the diversity of our common life, by the purity and love of everyday behavior, by the mutual submissiveness and care of our relationships in home, and lastly, by our stability to fight against the powers of evil. But let's close the series with the final thing that Paul talks about here in Ephesians 6, this other golden thread that's come through, which is verse 18 to 20. He ends it all by saying this, and spot the common word again. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions, with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert to keep praying for all of God's people. Pray also for me, that when I speak, Words may be given to me, I make fearlessly known the revelation of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in change. Pray that I may do it fearlessly as I should. Prayer, individually and together. Paul has prayed throughout this letter, and that's how I want to invite us to finish. So I'm going to invite the bands back at the different sites. And if you will allow it, I'm going to finish by reading you um, a paraphrase of one of Paul's prayers. It's Ephesians 3:14 to 17. I personally was really powerfully struck by, by a lot of the content. But one of Viv's sermons, he talked about this particular passage. And as I read it, I was just blown away by it. And so as a kind of a spiritual formation practice for myself, one of the things I find helpful is just to rewrite things in my own words. And so, those of you that know me now, I can't do a sermon without a spiritual practice. So, here is one for you. A really simple thing, if you want to take something away from Ephesians, is take these verses and write them in your own words. So, I'm just going to pray my version over you as we finish. So, this is my version um, of Ephesians 3, 14 to 17. I think it's on the screen. Paul prays, because of this life-changing revelation of God's goodness in Jesus the Messiah. I come and beg the Father who holds all authority that because of his character, he will clear the way for his power to enter you all through his spirit within you all to change your very core so that Jesus can make his home in that very core invited in through your trust in him, and enable you, drawing from God the power of God's love for you, to become that little bit more aware of the unfathomable <coughs> size of that very love you are drawing from. And also that this love, which will never make full rational sense to you, will form you all as a community as individuals into who God has made you to be, made in his image to reflect him and his coming kingdom in the world around us. Amen. May we all learn to stand firm together in that truth.